Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. I'm excited that we are continuing to work our way through this Birds and the Bees series that we have been going through for the last several weeks. Uh, We are on week five. This is going to end next week. Um, And what we have done over the course of the series is we've, we've tried to frame out what Christian sexuality is. We've tried to put definitions there. We've tried to explain what that looks like. And last week, what we talked about is really that the movements of sexual fundamentalism and sexual freedom have both actually failed us in great ways. Sexual fundamentalism has led to a lot of places that I don't think we intended for it to go, while sexual freedom, it was maybe easy to see where it was going to go, and yet it's so easy also to get caught up into that movement where we just say, I'm going to do whatever it feels like I should do. And last week, the the equation that we kind of looked at is our goal, our vision for how we would pursue sexual formation as human beings, as Christians, is that we want to have a right vision for sex, that God created sex. It was his idea. He designed all the parts around it. It was his idea to put man and woman opposite, as opposites, but as like as human beings who have different body parts together. And he has this beautiful vision for what sexuality can be, but he also then wants to empower us in the right way, that we're not powered by our own moralism. Anyone who's tried that has maybe succeeded for a little while, but ultimately it leads to failure. You cannot, if Jesus elevates the sexual ethic to even if you look at someone lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. That, that right there renders so many people as charged as guilty of sexual brokenness. And so we don't have the right power. We don't have the right uh, capacity to actually live out this vision that Jesus gives us. And so we need to be people who are desperate and hungry for the Holy Spirit to come and to keep aligning us and to keep bringing us back on course so that we would pursue sexual integrity, not for just a moment, but for the rest of our life. And how many of us know that is easier said than done? right? Like, can we just acknowledge that in the room today? There, there, you can put so much great effort forward. You can be so in tune with the Holy Spirit. You can be so walking on God's vision with God's power, doing the right things, but then a moment can rob you of something that you intended to do right. And this, I think, is what happens to King David. Even as, we're not going to go all the way into this story today, but if we look at King David's life, King David had a lot of really good seasons of life, didn't he? He walked through all these great seasons where he was being developed in the secret place on the hillside where he was just playing his harp, writing songs for the Lord, falling in love with Jesus. And he had this right vision for life. He had this right power that he was going by. And then he becomes king. And even in that process, there were tons of times for him to falter in his integrity, but he just stayed pure in his heart. He stayed pure in his motive. But then he finally gets to be the king of Israel. And then it says in 2 Samuel, in, in verse 11, it starts with, or starts with saying this in chapter 11, verse 1. In the springtime of the year, it's a time of year when the kings would go out to battle. Right? So we, what we have here is, is a man who has built sexual integrity throughout his life, or so we can assume. And now he gets to this moment where he's in a season where he should have been somewhere else. And instead he's doing something different. He should have been off to war but instead he was lingering in the palace. He should have been out pursuing the enemies of Israel. He should have been conquering places to to expand the nation of Israel, but instead he was twiddling his thumbs. Idle time never makes for good habits. And so he's sitting in the palace and his servants are with him and all of Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained in Jerusalem. And a lot of us, we know the next chapter of the story. 
David then catches a a glance of Bathsheba and gives himself over into an affair, an affair that actually takes him to do something that I never think that David, if you just read about his life, I don't think he ever envisioned himself getting to this point, but he actually sends that woman's husband off to the front line of the battle. So he's then guilty of murder. Sexual sin. Again, we've talked about this over the last several weeks. It will take you places that you never saw yourself going. If you have a life that's marked by compromise, that compromise is eventually, it is going to bleed out into other places than just your sexuality. And so how do we, here's the question for the morning. How do we walk through the seasons of life with sexual integrity? How do we not make it just this one moment thing? I I, I love if we make right decisions in the right moments, but that doesn't mean a whole lot if we can't sustain that right decision-making for the long haul. We need to be making decisions in the seasons for today, for the seasons of tomorrow in our lives. I, you know, every funeral I do, I seem to be drawn back to this verse in Ecclesiastes. I'm always reading Ecclesiastes 3. Well, just, it's just Solomon explaining that there's a season in life for everything. There's a time to cast away. I'm sorry, for the, everything there's a season and a time for every manner under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. And this is the wisest man on earth, by the way. He's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be born, you're going to die. There's a time to plant and there's a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Hello, people who are verbal processors, too quick to speak. (laughs) And a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's all these seasons that our lives naturally move through. And I think one of the more difficult things from my perspective throughout this series is acknowledging that so many of us, as we gather as one family in the body of Christ, we see our church as a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, one other, no matter the differences that may exist in the rows that you're sitting in. There's different social classes, there are different way of voting, different family structures, all these differences that are amongst us. Hopefully, our shared commonality in Christ is greater than all of our differences. That is what makes us family. We can come together in family because we have one God and Father, right? And yet... I know that who I'm consistently preaching to throughout the weeks of this series are people who are just married and their marriage is perfect. Praise God. There's no issues with either person. And then there's people who've been married longer than that who are laughing right now, right? There's people who are single. There's people who are single and desiring to be married someday. There are people who are single and they're tired of their singleness. They thought that that season would be over by now. There are people who never saw themselves as being single. I know I'm talking to widows, I'm talking to people who are divorced, people who never saw their marriage going in this kind of way. And so as a group, I just know that as a family, we have all sorts of different stories, all sorts of different seasons of life that every single person brings into this room every single Sunday. And so today, what I wanna do for the rest of our time is I just wanna talk about three primary seasons that I see in our church family. And I wanna call some specific things out in each group. And so the first one that I wanna talk about is the season of parenting. How many of you guys are in the season of parenting with young kids in your house? Just raise your hand. I think this is a huge number of people in our church. Like, Lord help us. I don't know where we're going to keep stuffing all the kids on Sunday morning. (laughs) I see you at the check-in line. We're talking about how to fix the check-in line. Literally, my wife leaned over to me during worship. She's like, the check-in line is massive. And I'm going, yeah, we're working on it. I know, and we are, we're working on it. 
there are kids all up in this space. Garrick is, he's our elementary director. He's sitting right here. There's like, I don't know, there's like 60 kids sometimes in that zone sometimes Sunday mornings. There are a ton of young parents. And here's what I have to have you young parents know about this conversation when it comes to your parenting. Is that parents, you have to take ownership of this conversation in your household. I just want to lovingly challenge you this morning. As I, I said in week one, I come to this series. I come into this room every single Sunday as a parent. And so I'm preaching a lot of times, a lot of my stories, a lot of the ways that I'm thinking are through the lens of parenting. We have three kids and I, I love them so much. And I also really, really love the marriage class right now where I get 90 minutes uninterrupted with just my wife. <laughs> Praise God, right? Like it's busy. There's a lot of things going on. And I know the gravitational pull in my own heart is to not lean in to awkward conversations, but to rather to lean into comfort. But this conversation in particular, when we start to talk about sexual formation and sexuality, parents, you have to take ownership of this conversation. Otherwise, curiosity will lead your kids into getting the information elsewhere. Right? Do you know that? And, and, and Lord help us all, if the locker room or if the classroom are the places that are primarily defining what Christian sexuality should look like because they're miles off from where we ought to be heading. And so here, I said this in the, I've said this before, but I'll say it again because it's worth repeating. Our goal as parents should be to have 101 minute conversations with our kids, not one 100 minute conversation with our kid. Listen, I, I love my mom and dad. I, I know in my heart, they did the best with what they had. And I think a lot of parents on the older generation, you guys, you did the best that you possibly knew how to do as parents. Like kids help us all. Like we just, it, you don't come with an owner's manual. There's no direction booklet. I, I love Legos because it's like on page one, you do this instruction. On page two, you put this piece there. And then you just keep going one piece at a time. That's not how it is with kids. It's difficult. There are things that happen. And so I got sat down with one video with my brother and we watched it in horror together. <laughs> and then my mom was like, any questions? And it was like, I'm not talking with you about this. First of all, I already know everything that's on that video, but I don't know why we had to just do that together. And why is my brother here? And this is a lot of our experience, right? A lot of us, even in this room today, I know I've had the conversations with you. We had one 100 minute conversations and we, would, we wished we were dead during that time. It was like, this is terrible. This is the worst moment of my life right now, right? And so, man, I, this is coming from uh, some of Preston Sprinkle's work that we're taking the youth group through. But ha instead, parents, have a hundred one-minute conversations. It's far more effective at building relationship with your kid. It's far more effective at teaching them that you're actually the expert in this conversation. Your, your, your kid's seventh grade peer is not the sexual expert in their life. You have probably had sex way more times than they have. Don't let them tell them what it's all about. <laughs> Am I wrong? And yet, why do we settle for letting culture define what this should look like when we can take the reins in this conversation and we can own it in our own house? Golly, that, that language has just been so helpful for me. I've, I've, I've shared it, but like, I, I know when it's time to have a conversation with one of my kids. There are just, there are certain spaces that we've created. We've created, I would encourage you parents, create a cadence of conversation where it's like, hey, I just know. It was like a couple summers back, Katie was just like, every Friday, we're just gonna go for a walk with one of our daughters and we're just gonna go and whatever we talk about is whatever we talk about. We're gonna have some intentionality, but it's also gonna be loose. It builds that relationship. And, and hopefully parents, you can be the ones, this, is, this should be your goal if it's not already there yet. You should be the first person to tell your kid about sex. That should be your aim. That should be your goal. 
they should have a shocked reaction when you first tell them because they've never heard it before. That's your goal. And so what if you aren't there? Well, that's where it's, it's great to know that the grace of God is sufficient in all things. Amen? Amen? So let's say your kids have made mistakes. Let's say your kids have veered somewhere. Keep the conversation going. They need to know that you can be trusted. They need to know that you can be vulnerable and transparent. You can open up about your own mistakes and show where the grace of God has been sufficient in you as you approach this topic with them. I know it's uncomfortable. It is hard even still preaching this series, like going through all this stuff, knowing I need to have a conversation. I still just go, how am I going to start this conversation today? And we need to, we need to own the conversation. Do you want to hear a shocking statistic? This is done by Preston Sprinkle in his uh, Centers for Faith, uh, Sexuality, and Gender. Surveyed a bunch of younger kids and what they found in, in the teenage years 95% of those who struggle with sexual brokenness never had a significant conversation about sex with their father. Let me say that one more time. Of all the kids who struggle with sexual brokenness, 95% of them never had an intentional conversation about this topic with their father. Fathers in the room, let me tell you this. You need to own the authority that God has given you in this conversation. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. I'm not saying if you just have a hundred one minute conversations with your kids that you can guarantee the results in your kids' lives, but it gives you the best shot at being a trusted father figure that every kid needs to be able to turn to and come to with questions, with confession, and with mistakes, shortcomings, encouragement, all those different things. That should be someone that's brought to the, the parents' feet to go, dad, I don't know what I'm doing with this. Amen, right? Yes. The baby's got it right there. Please hear me though. Parents, I want to challenge you. Own this conversation. Otherwise, someone else will own it for you. And we don't want curiosity from just any public opinion driving our kids' formation around this issue. We have to take ownership. The other piece of this is that we can't just own the conversation, but we also have to learn how to parent our kids towards freedom. And that's hard. Katie developed this like several years ago. She maybe got it from somebody else. I don't really know. I'm just going to credit her for it. But she said, I want to teach my kids the law so that when they grow up and they're teenagers, I can then show them grace. And I think that should be the linear path. And and it's not perfect trajectory, right? It's ups and downs all the time. But when my kids are kids, I am am putting parameters in front of their understanding. So when my eight-year-old says, I want a smartphone, I'm like, yeah, that's ridiculous. You're not having a smartphone because you can't understand all the power of the internet right now in your eight-year-old sized brain. And so I'm going to put rules in front of everything that you can possibly understand. And I'm going to parent with the law at first. Can I do this? No. And if you do, there will be consequences. Justice will rain down from dad if you keep doing that. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Listen, however you want to apply that verse in your house, you apply it in your house. But, but you cannot, we cannot just cater to every little whim and need. It's like, oh, well, they're just expressing their emotions right now. It's like, no, they're throwing a tantrum and they need to be disciplined. Yeah, right? And I know that's hard. And a lot of times I've come to find like disciplining my kids is a lot more like disciplining me because I'm like, go clean the basement. And it's a lot easier actually just to go clean the basement on my own. You know what I mean? I'm gonna take your screen time away if you don't clean the basement. Well, then they don't clean the basement and I just took their screen time away and now my afternoon is shot because I don't have screen time to bank on. (laughs) Am I being real this morning? Yes, right? We have to teach our kids the law then so that we can ultimately show them grace so that when they come to us with the big mistake, when they come to us with this, I just really messed up, 
then we can go, listen, right now, I want to teach you actually not about the law and the consequences that you actually deserve, but I'm going to show you the grace because Jesus has been gracious to me. And it's more important to me that you know about him than it is that you follow all of my rules perfectly in this household. Because you need to know the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. Because that is, in fact, what's going to empower us into doing right behavior. That's what we talked about last week. So we have to parent towards freedom. This is why the psalmist can say, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Like children are arrows in the quiver. Arrows are no good if they're just sitting in the quiver. Do we understand this? Arrows are meant to be released. So like your kids at 20, at 25, at 30 years old, if they're still living in your house, I'm not against you creating a space for them to come back in if they need it for a moment, but you cannot coddle them for forever. I'll say this to some of the older parents in the room. You got to quit bailing out your kids that are adults at this point because they need to be released into the world. You, you love them, you bless them, you serve them how you can, but eventually you have to let them go. There is a natural process of cleaving that has to happen. And if they continually come back to you in this weird dependency cycle, then you are eventually, you're the one guilty of perpetuating the cycle. And so we have to understand Kids are meant to be raised up so that we can let them go. I, listen, I, my kids are young still, four, eight, 10. They're all about to have birthdays, about five, nine, and 11. It's odd year for us, right? We go between even years and odd years. And when they turn 18 and they graduate and they go to, they go to college or whatever they do, trade school maybe, because I don't know, college doesn't seem like it's panning out for a lot of people, but I'll do whatever. And I'll be sad for like a day. <laughs> and then I'll be ready to hang out with my wife. You know what I'm saying? Because kids were meant to be raised up and released. Raised up and released. We parent them towards freedom and we take ownership of them because it is by the grace of God that he has entrusted them to us for this short season of life. That's the first season is the season of parenting. The second season is the season of marriage. And I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here, but ultimately your marriage should be viewed by you, married people in the room, as a gift from God, which means it is a gift that is something that is meant for God. Let me say that again. Your marriage is a gift from God, which means ultimately that it is for God. So your marriage on its best day will reflect the love of Jesus Christ towards his church. And that at the end of the day will be the best that your marriage can possibly be. And it is a season. We don't get to take our spouses with us into eternity. And if you have a tough marriage, that's kind of good news this morning. <laughs> if, you have, if you have a great marriage, it's kind of sad, isn't it? Yeah. But listen, let me remind you, marriage is a season. We should see our marriages in light of eternity. We should see our marriages as the temporary institution that they are here on earth. And they are, are they a good gift from God? Yes, they are. But they do not last for forever. And so what we need to be cultivating in the middle of our marriages is a deep, significant relationship with Jesus because the union with Christ is the only thing that's gonna last forever. So marriage, we get the best picture probably in Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians 5, verse 30. Paul says, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, the two becoming one. Remember how we talked about this idea of connecto when we talked about the issue of homosexuality and that we ultimately can't see marriage between man and man and woman and woman as a valid God idea because of the word connecto. This as like as or as against the difference. There is a similarity in that Adam and Eve were both human, but there was a difference in that they were male and female. 
And marriage is not just some certificate that exists on a piece of paper. It's not just the union where we put a ring on and we make some promises to each other. The marriage, what it is, it is this co-mingling of two souls where two people become one flesh. And that mystery Paul acknowledges as a single man, he says, it's profound. And I'm saying that it actually refers to what your marriage actually represents is Christ in the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so what the marriage bed becomes is this, this kind of dance of, of trying to submit and try to honor one another better. Where we're not trying to use our position or our authority or our power for any selfish gain, but we're in a selfless way seeking to serve and to build up the person across from us because that is how Christ has loved us. And so every single wedding that I get to do, uh, I'm getting asked to do a wedding here in the fall that I'm actually gonna say no to because they don't want any scripture or any prayer. And I'm like, that, I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to teach through a message like that because my only trick when I get up here and I have a, you know, a groom and a bride sitting in front of me is I go, hey, you guys are awesome, but this is actually about Jesus and he's gonna make, he's gonna make up for your mistakes in this marriage just so you know. That's my only trick that I have when I'm doing a wedding ceremony. As I'm like, yeah, I, I love both of you too. You're awesome, but you're going to fail and it's gonna be hard. And ultimately, when we read this verse out of Corinthians that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, you should first remember that that's how Christ has loved you. And so our marriages, again, the best thing that we have in our marriage is to reflect the love of Jesus to the world around us but I wanna spend the bulk of my time actually talking this morning about singleness, the season of singleness. So if we talk through the season of parenting, the season of marriage, I wanna spend some time now on the season of singleness because I know sitting in front of me today that uh, maybe not most of our church, but a lot of our church is represented by single people. And those single people, some of you are young. Some of you are coming to church every Sunday morning looking to meet that person finally, right? Like, I can't meet him online. I can't meet him anywhere else. I'm gonna go to church and see if I can find me a boy who worships Jesus, right? And it, there's kind of this stigma that we've created in the church where, man, if, if you're not married by this certain day, then a lot of the older ladies in the church will kind of be like, oh, so, you know, how's singleness going? You know, you found, you found that right person yet? And right, I think, I think if we, the, the single people that I've talked to, generally speaking, it can be seen as a church as you are incomplete, or there's maybe something wrong with you. There's an insufficiency some way until you get married. And yet that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. So let me just read through a few stats about singleness first. The marriage rate in 1970, this kind of puts some things into perspective for us. In 1970, 70% of the American population was married. And if you go to the mid 20 teens, that number is now 50%. So the marriage rate has been slowly declining uh, over the last several years. And now, um, the average rate of marriage between those who are 18 and 34 is about, was about 59% in the 70s. Now it's about 29% today. So that's a huge drop-off in the number of marriages to go over the last 30, 40 years from, from a total of 59% married, almost 60% of the population, down to one-third of the population, 29%. The average age of marriage for a woman in the United States is 28 years old, while for men, it's 30. It just, listen, it takes us a little longer to grow up, doesn't it, boys? Right? It just does. Our maturity kicks in a little later. I'll fully acknowledge that. Denver, actually, the state of Colorado has one of the highest averages of singleness where 59% of those in our state are single. They estimate uh, in, in, here over the next 10, 20 years that there are gonna be about 25% of the population, one in four people are gonna reach the age of 50 without having ever been married. 
and listen, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of okay reasons for that. That is not just a sad thing. And now it can be a frustrating thing for people who want to be married, but there's just a reality too that the world is putting a lesser and less emphasis on the institution of marriage. And so, especially if you take it outside of the church and if you look at just what's happening in culture with, uh, with the hookup culture, all the apps that I talked about last week, there's just easy ways to make sex more of just a physical activity that you can kind of get that physical need met without all the baggage and commitment of marriage. And that's just what's happening culturally. And yet I know that who's sitting in front of me today are young single people who wanna be married, young single people who are actually content in their singleness and they're doing a great job. I know there are people who are widowed and they never thought they would be in this situation that they're here in today. There are people who are divorced and maybe their marriage has recently failed and it was one that they never saw going this way. Maybe some of you are spiritually single today. You come into this church every single Sunday and you wish that your spouse would be sitting next to you, but they stay at home because they're not interested in your faith. I know that there's all kinds of singleness that exists in the church. And what I want to say to you today is your singleness, as much as I can get you to wrap your head around this, and as much as I can say this as a 32-year-old married for the last 12 years man, right? So let's just level for just a second before I talk to you single people. I was married at 20. Same wife. Praise God. We've been married since we were 20. I I never went through a significant uh, time of singleness in my life. I don't know what it's like to be a young adult single person. I don't know what it's like to be an older single person. And yet the Bible paints a really good picture of what we can do intentionally in our singleness. And so in Matthew 19, we'll turn there. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. We'll be in Matthew 19, starting in verse eight. I I love this section of scripture for a couple reasons. I think you gotta have a sense of humor to read through it, but there's there's a couple different kinds of Pharisees who are quizzing Jesus on what kind of divorce is allowable. So they're asking Jesus like, hey, you know, there's this guy, this rabbi with this school of thought where it's basically like you can never get divorced no matter what happens. And then on the other end of it, it'd be the more liberal school of thought was like, like you can divorce your wife if she offends you in any way. So like she cooks your breakfast wrong one morning, she doesn't serve it to you just the way that you like, you can get divorced. Right? So there's these two like huge differing schools of thought. And so like, Jesus, what's your take on divorce? And he says, well, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So here we have Jesus's vision for marriage is that it would not end in divorce. And he gives us one allowance here where he says, but if someone commits adultery, then you have the out that you would need. But he says, it's because of the, it's because of the brokenness of humanity that divorce even exists at all. It wouldn't exist unless we weren't broken people, unless there wasn't this hardness of the human heart. This is verse 10. I love how the disciples respond. So the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, is it better not to marry? Don't you just love their honesty there? They're like, wait a sec. That's the only reason you can get divorced? Why would anyone ever get married then? (laughs) This is just your Bible. That's what it says. But he said to them, he replies to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus breaks down for us three kinds of single people. People who are that way from birth. 
Now, in this instance here, in this case, what he would have been talking about were people who were born with, they either had some sort of mutilation or some sort of defect that was present from birth where they were gonna be unable to live out a marriage relationship. And so they are single, they are celibate. We can think of the word as celibate because what we know, what we've covered over the last couple of weeks is that our call as Christians is that outside of the marriage bed, there is no sexual activity. And that even for the married person, there is no sexual activity with our eyes or with any other part of our body that is outside of that of just our spouse, right? And so for all single people, the call is celibacy. The call is no sexual experience. And the world right now is bombarding you by telling you that you cannot live a fulfilled and meaningful life without sexual expression or without sexual experience. And what Preston Sprinkle says, he's the guy who's authoring all the stuff we're taking the youth, um, the youth group through. He says, yeah, that thought actually comes from Freud though, not from your Bible. The only way that you can live a fulfilled life as a human being is through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not sexual expression. It is not sexual experience that leads you to the most fulfilled version of your life. It's only Jesus who can take you there. And so he says here, that for the three kinds of categories of people who are going to live as celibates, there are some who are that way from birth. Some, some people are either born that way or they just have this sort of disposition. And then he says, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So people who have had this forced upon them or who have taken some sort of, um, they've, they've entered into some sort of agreement where they are not going to be living out their sexuality in this kind of way, but they're going to live a life of celibacy. And then category three, he said, then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so this one would have been a really hard one for the Jewish people to grasp, but there are people who are gonna take a vow of celibacy to live their life set apart for the kingdom of God. Now, I think what we have to embrace is what Paul actually says then as he sort of mirrors this teaching then in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. I love the humility that he writes with because you have to keep in mind, both Jesus and Paul, are single people. Do you realize that? Like if we were to like somehow keep perpetuating a thought that only married people can contribute to the kingdom of God, we'd have to take out all of Jesus and all of Paul's teaching, which is basically all of your New Testament. No, but for single people, he's saying I, as a concession, Paul's saying this, this is a personal opinion. Paul's going, hey, this is my own opinion, not a command. I say that I wish all were as I myself am a single man, a single person, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So he says, marriage is a gift from God. Steward that gift well. Singleness is a gift from God. Steward that gift well. Now here's, here's I have to just submit this right here in this spot because the circumstances that led to your singleness are not the gift. Please hear me what I'm saying. It is not the divorce that is the gift from God. It is not the, the death of your spouse that is the gift from God. That is tragic and that is heartbreaking. But what Paul is encouraging us to consider right now is that the season now that you are in is a gift. Why? He says, because to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Because what he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that you have a focus and a clarity that is not divided like the married man's attention is divided. Man, no matter how much work I do in a day, I still have to go home at some part of the day and I have to check in on my wife. I have to see how my family's going. I have to, I have to intention to be a good husband and a good dad. And for the married person, you have a, you have a, super crystal clear, undivided focus on Jesus. 
And I know you maybe don't see that as a gift right now, but the Bible this morning, it's not me. The Bible this morning is considering you to view your singleness as a gift in this season. Now, if you desire a spouse someday, praise God, I, I, I will pray for that with you. I will desire that with you. But don't, don't short circuit what God's trying to do in this season to jump ahead to the next season because he's probably forming something in you right now that you're gonna need to take with you into marriage someday. Maybe you're never gonna be married again. Maybe you know that full well sitting in this room. Marriage is not for you. Then what you should be sitting here thinking is, man, God has given me the gift of focus on him. I don't have to worry about another person. I don't, he, he actually paints the picture of marriage as being filled with all sorts of different anxieties. There's all sorts of different things that you have to think about when you're married. Even, even if everything's going good, you still have to ask the question like, okay, am I keeping everything going good? Am I still doing the things that, like we're, Katie and I are doing the marriage class right now and it's like, things are good for us right now, but I'm still every week going like, okay, but am I doing, like, am I doing a good enough job? Am I still working on this? I still need to get better at that. In a way that for the single person, you do not have the anxieties of marriage. Now, as I was talking with different people, knowing what I'm talking about this week and knowing that I don't have the experience of singleness, I was asking some different people, trying to color in this picture a little more for me. And what most people have said is that, yeah, but I would love to have the problems of marriage rather than the problems that I'm facing in singleness. And I sympathize with that. I understand that the, the, the problems that I face as a married man are problems that you would maybe love to enter into someday. And at the same time, Paul's words for us in 1 Corinthians is to treat your singleness as something that you can focus on right now and to not short circuit something to get to the next season ahead of life. I know that what this means for some of you is maybe a change of behavior. Maybe it's a change of focus. I think way too often, especially the younger single people in the room, let me speak to you for just a sec. You, you sometimes will lack a clarity of vision for how you're dating. And because of your loneliness or because of your frustration with your relationship status right now, you will sort of settle for or go for anything that's right in front of you. And I just want to remind you, I think the best thing that some of the young people in the room can do today, if you are desiring to be married someday, even if you're not a young person, but you're still desiring to be married someday, is you need to get a God-given vision for what a spouse would look like someday. And then you don't settle for anything less than that vision. Now, if your list is a mile long and you got a hundred things on there about how tall he is and what his color is and what his income is, that's not what I'm talking about, all right? I'm talking about things like character. I'm talking about things like how does he treat the people around him? How does he love Jesus? But just like, okay, so like you need vision for your dating, just like I need vision in the grocery store. This, this is what I'm saying. I go, I, I'm, I'm actually in my household, I'm banned from grocery shopping by myself. I'm working, you know, I, I tried to get free. This happened a while back, but I just recently got rebanned from the grocery store. Katie and I are trying to live on a budget. We're trying to like be intentional with our finances this year. And I went to the grocery store and she was like, how much did it cost? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I just, I, I did a thing. And you need, listen, how many of us know this? Just as a human being, you need vision when you go grocery shopping, especially if you're trying to do things right. Like I need a list. Give me a list, give me the specific things. And then I gotta be told I can't veer from that list, which is ultimately where my flesh fails me every single time I go, right? I'm like, yeah, lucky charms, we need those. Yeah, nerd clusters, give me some of them. Put those in the lane, we need them, you know? <laughs> Listen, I'm trying, like, there, there is a way that we go about dating that it is similar. And I know that's true. I've talked with enough of you. I've sat with some of you. And you need to have a focus. You need to have a God-given vision for what your marriage could look like someday. My, here, here's my question. 
Have you ever sat down and just gone, God, what do you want for my future spouse? What do you want in me for me to be a future spouse someday? We have to stop and we have to sit and we have to ask the Holy Spirit to speak these things to us because culture is loud. The TV shows speak to us about what marriage should look like. All sorts of different things around us are inputs and forming our idea of marriage and all the married people in the room, how many of y'all live in just this perfect honeymoon bliss still 50 years in? Y'all had some ups and downs and some fights and some, I'm imagining it's gotten a little messy some days. And so we can't have this fairy tale version of marriage and just as much, we cannot have a truncated vision for singleness. Single people in the room, please do not wait to chase after something that God has put in your heart until you are married. That is an arbitrary finish line that you have created that is not one that God has given you. There, there is a clarity of focus that comes with being single. You, you, can, you can tackle big things that are in front of you while you're single. God will give you all the grace that you need to overcome. I'm so proud of some of the single people in this congregation. I think of a, a woman in our congregation who's two times widowed. Two, she lost two husbands to cancer and she's not sitting at home. She had a moment when she was sad. She had a season where she just sat and it was difficult, but now what she's, she's doing, she's leading the grief group every single week. She's teaching other people, lead, ministering to other people. She's not on the sidelines with her singleness. And married people, we have to have a broader vision for what it looks like to invite single people into our church. I, I was so convicted, honestly, with this sermon preparing it, going like every single one of my pictures and analogies and metaphors that I use on Sunday morning has to do with my family and my kids. I'm going to work to try to broaden that a little bit because single people, you are just as much a part of this family. I have a friend sitting in this room right now, him and his wife, they intentionally bring over some of the single people in their life over to dinner every single week. And they, or they bring them over and they say, hey, let's check in, let's have dinner. Let's invite them into our small groups. We don't just have to have small groups of just young family small groups and they don't let anyone else in. We have to have open doors. We have to practice radical hospitality to say, I don't know what's going on in your life, but if you don't have somebody to sit with and eat a meal with, I'll sit with you. I'll eat with you. We cannot treat single people as any lesser than or with any sort of diminished kind of gift. They are not single because their relationship with God is volatile and they're not strong enough to be married yet. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Single people, you are needed in this church. You are needed in this space. You, God has given you gifts just like he's given the married people gifts and you need to continue to chase after them. And, and married people in the room, we need to support them and we need to be some of their friends. We need to sit down and have meals with them to champion them in whatever it is that God's calling them to do. This has got to be a place where we can be a family. Where single people, you can give some grace to us parents of young kids that are running around causing terror on Sunday mornings as I just worry if they're gonna trip older people in the room. Do you know what I mean? Married people, we gotta create space for people whose marriages are completely falling apart in our small groups right now. And we have to come around along them and, and love them and not display some sort of faux strength in our own marriage because it's the grace of God that has gotten any of us anywhere every time. And so we have to be a place where as a family, we can all sit next to each other knowing that Jesus is the main focus. And if you come to our small group, it doesn't just mean we're gonna try to get you married somewhere. It doesn't mean we're gonna try and just fix this thing, but we're gonna sit down together. We're gonna share a meal. We're gonna pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? I wanna spend just a few minutes praying specifically that God would give each of us a vision for his picture of our life in the season to come. Because whatever season you're in right now, whether you're married, whether you have young kids, old kids, whether you're divorced, widowed, you're in a season of life right now and it's not gonna last for forever. But what you do in the season today 
will influence what season you're in tomorrow. Galatians 6 says it this way. We've read it a couple times recently. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap. Let that be encouragement to your tired soul this morning. Keep reaping into the, or keep sowing into the right direction. It, you will be confronted today by the Holy Spirit. I'm praying that you have been either making decisions that are not leading you in a certain way, or you can course correct to start, start sowing seeds into a different version of your future. One that is filled with the Spirit of God. One that is not being sown into the flesh, but is being sown into the life of the Spirit. He says, don't give up. Because as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It matters how we treat each other in this room. It does. It matters how we love one another. It matters how we create space for one another. So even right now, before you stand up, I just want to pray for each of us. And so maybe if you're willing, if you want to just kind of posture yourself in a way to receive. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us right now. Give us a clarity, a vision to see the people that you would have us be. I pray for the husbands in the room right now. God, would you help our wives flourish under our headship and our leadership? Would we submit our, our own endeavors? Would we submit some of the things that we feel like doing every now and then? Would we submit that to the health and the safety and the flourishing of our own household? Would we use our leadership to serve those around us? God, for the wives in this room, I pray, that they would, I pray that they would seek to serve their husbands in the way that are gonna meet them where they're at, God. I pray that you'd empower the wives, empower the wives to be fearful women of God who aren't marked with compromise, who are clear on what you're calling them into and who serve and love and pour out the tenderness and compassion in their household well. God, for the singles in our room, God, I just ask that you would help them to not I pray that we as the church wouldn't perpetuate a feeling of insufficiency. God, would they know that they are completely sufficient in you. As hard as it may be to hear and as hard as it may be to receive, God, I pray that they would receive their singleness as a gift this morning. And I pray that even right now, would you give them a picture of the ministry that can happen through them in Jesus' name. Show them where you can take them, Lord. Show them the, the specialness of their union with you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would lead them well. God, I just pray for our kids. I pray for all the kids that are in the room, all the kids that are grown, all the kids that are in the other rooms of this church right now. God, would you help us as parents lead them well? Help us, Jesus, be voices of ownership and authority, but also filled with tenderness and humility. God, we need your Holy Spirit to come and to empower us in the right direction. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.